0: Hello and welcome to Dialogues in Dermatology. I'm Dr. Lauren Council, your Editor-in-Chief. We have another exciting podcast for you today. We hope that you enjoy. The novel coronavirus, or COVID-19, is a new coronavirus first identified in Wuhan, China in 2019 that has been rapidly spreading around the world. As of March 24, 2020, the CDC reported more than 44,000 identified cases in the U.S. The American Academy of Dermatology has developed a series of podcasts on this global health issue, including a roundtable discussion on the need to know science and issues for dermatologists, as well as interviews with experts on teledermatology and the author of a Journal of the American Academy of Dermatology article on steps taken in the dermatology outpatient department during the outbreak.
1: Welcome to this special edition of Dialogues in Dermatology, an update on the coronavirus global pandemic, its skin manifestations, and the international dermatology community's response. This is Shadi Karosh from the Department of Dermatology at Massachusetts General Hospital. And today I have the privilege of hosting a virtual roundtable discussion by phone with members of the American Academy of Dermatology's COVID-19 Task Force. Dr. Esther Freeman, Director of Global Health Dermatology at Massachusetts General Hospital and Chair of the AAD's Committee for Clinical Guidelines. Dr. Lindy Fox, Director of the Hospital Consultation Service and Complex Medical Dermatology Fellowship in the Department of Dermatology at the University of California, San Francisco. Today, we also welcome two special guests with particular experience in the front lines of the COVID response. Dr. Raffaella Giannotti, Professor of Dermatology and Dermatopathology at the University of Milan and Dr. Mark Lebwall, professor and chair of dermatology at the Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai. To our panel, thank you so much for joining us. To begin, I'd like to ask Dr. Freeman and Dr. Fox about the new registry for COVID related diseases that I understand you've been developing for the dermatology community. Last month, I had the privilege of speaking with you in the first segment of our COVID podcast series at the beginning of the epidemic I recall even then you mentioned that skin manifestations associated with the infection were being noted by our colleagues in other parts of the world and that we should watch for these and begin systematically reporting them. And within a few weeks, we saw that come to light as reports started appearing in the literature and numerous questions on social media platforms in the dermatology community. And now I understand we have a registry to report those dermatologic findings. So could you tell our listeners about this registry and how to engage with it? Thank you very much, Shadi. I
2: really appreciate the question. We've been really blown away by the collaboration across the dermatologic community and trying to get the word out about how to report dermatologic manifestations of COVID-19. In particular, we've developed a registry in collaboration with the American Academy of Dermatology and also the International League of Dermatologic Societies, which is housed through a REDCap platform, which is a secure web platform at Massachusetts General Hospital. So just to let people know, a lot of people are asking about where the data lives the data does not live at the American Academy of Dermatology. The data is housed at Massachusetts General Hospital. This registry is both a domestic and international registry with the idea that any healthcare provider from any specialty can enter data about patients with dermatologic manifestations of COVID-19 who've then gone on to develop COVID-19 into the database. The idea is that data entry is relatively easy. It should take about five to seven minutes to enter a case. It has been through the Partners Healthcare Ethical Review Board, and we do not collect any protected health information or any identifying information about the case.
1: Thank you, Dr. Freeman. For our listeners, you can access the registry on the AAD's website at www.aad.org forward slash COVID registry. And I can personally attest, having logged cases in the registry, that only very basic questions about demographics and clinical features of the case were asked, and it really did take me less than five minutes to log a case. It was truly de-identified and very straightforward. My question is, how do we know a case is truly COVID related? Because it seems that it's still a bit nebulous which cases are actually considered positive, and especially with the variability of the various types of testing that are out there. So are we to include confirmed COVID cases or also the ones that we think may be COVID related? That's a great question. So right now, because of limited
2: testing, both nationally and internationally, you're right that it's very hard for us to often know for sure if our patient has COVID or does not have COVID. And right now, given that we don't have widespread antibody testing, it's hard for us to know if our patient may have had COVID in the past. When we see skin findings, it can be a little bit hard to know if these are definitely related. And until we have more widespread testing, both for acute disease and for past disease, these answers are going to be a little bit tough to pin down. You might have a case that you think may have been COVID positive, but you don't have lab testing or they weren't able to get lab testing. So we accept both of those kinds of cases into the registry. We are stratifying our results based on COVID test positivity. So we do look at patients separately who have been PCR confirmed COVID and those who people are entering that might be suspected for COVID. I think there's also an interesting group that we've been seeing recently where patients have suspected COVID, but by the time they're tested, they are PCR negative. There's three possible reasons for that. One is that whatever sign or symptom we're seeing is not actually related to COVID. Two, it could be that it's a false negative. We know there's a certain amount of false negatives with our testing. And then number three, it's certainly possible that if this is a later stage in their COVID process, they may no longer be PCR positive. And it might be that as we get more antibody testing, we're able to understand that maybe they did have COVID and this is a late stage finding. So I do think it's relevant to kind of enter all those cases, and I just want to reassure people that we're really looking at each individual case that is entered to try to understand whether or not this is a confirmed or a suspected case of COVID. I think the important thing is the clinical suspicion. If you do think that, in your clinical opinion, this could be related to COVID um, and you don't have access to testing, then it's very reasonable to put that information in the registry and to indicate to us that you don't have testing available, that you think it may be related to COVID.
1: And speaking of clinical findings, we began to learn about some of these from our colleagues in other countries. I'd like to ask Dr. Giannotti, our colleague from Italy, for his perspective. Italy was the first country outside Asia to grapple with this global pandemic, and your department serving the cities of Bergamo and Milan was truly in the trenches of that war. We in the US were following the news with sympathy and concern, and also with a heightened awareness that we would be next. So could you please tell us about the experience of your department in Milan through the epidemic? what advice would you share with your colleagues in the U.S. and other parts of the world?
3: Sure. Hi, everyone. My name is Raffaele Gianotti, and I'm a dermatopathologist working for 35 years in the dermatopathology lab of the University of Milan in Italy. 12 million of people live in our region, called Lombardia. Milan is the capital. In Italy, a region is similar to a state in USA. And obviously, we have a governor that sometimes disagrees with the Italian prime minister. We have more than 13,000 deaths from corona infection in my region and 25,000 in Italy. Anyway, I'm going to tell you my dermatological observations with a special correlation with histopathology. We must split cutaneous COVID patients in two different groups. The first group is composed by people that have a confirmed COVID disease, showing cutaneous dermatosis. The second group is composed by people who are visiting for the first time, complaining for a cutaneous rash. Obviously, this second group is the most sneaky and dangerous. The cutaneous rash can appear in any stage of the COVID disease. And it is not related to the severity of the viral infection, except for the patients have a diffuse coagulopathy. And generally, these patients are intubating in intensive care unit. A second group of patients that are COVID positive may show a simply exanthema, just like that of early stage of sunburn. Histologically, you see only telemjectatic blood vessels. Next step for these patients is the presence of a small coalition papules that became palpable with time. This corresponds to a much more dense infiltration with nests of Langeran cells that are activated by viral swarm passing through the vessels of the skin. Later, the exanthema become much more intense because edema, neutrophils, eosinophils, and sign of lymphocytic vasculitis are histologically present. Please remember that generally, you can see just one of these different stages in a patient, only rarely, all together in one person. Lastly, and most interesting observation we did, is a COVID-positive patient with minor signs of viral disease, having a widespread eruption on the trunk that is very close clinically and histopathologically to Grover disease. The cutaneous lesions in COVID people may appear a couple of days before fever and cough, or just after the first signs of systemic infection, or during hospitalization. Except for the levadovasculitis patients, uh, this, in this case is the more severe one, the other types generally disappear in one week. But the tremendous pitfall is when you visit a patient for the first time who complained a sudden cutaneous rash on the trunk, arms, and on the legs. And you don't know any information about PCR COVID scrap.
1: Thank you, Dr. Giannotti. It's helpful to have both the clinical and dermatopathology perspective. I think it's also interesting to have your perspective as a physician who specializes in viral diseases. I understand your father was the physician who first characterized the condition of Giannotti Crosti and that you yourself have a particular background in viral disease. How is the skin presentation of COVID similar or different to other viral presentations in dermatology?
3: Yes, thank you for this question. It's funny because it seems that the Gianotti families has the virus in, in their blood, because uh, in nineteen fifty-five my father Ferdinando Genotti published as a single author the first observation of an unusual dermatitis, which is later became known as Gianotti Crossy disease. I must tell you, just like any other dermatosis induced by virus, Langeran cells were the first clue. And this happens also in uh, PTRIsis rosea of Gibert. And obviously, Langrand cells can be found in drug rush also. But in this time, forget about drug rush, the first prime suspect is uh, the COVID 19.
1: And what about the vasculopathic lesions that we've been seeing in some patients and the possible association of COVID with hypercoagulability? Has this been found to be relevant?
3: Yes, this is a very mysterious aspect. It seems that the virus passing through the vessels can activate a cytokine cascade that induces coagulopathy very close to the intravascular disseminate coagulopathy. But we are very few cases of, I think we need more specimens and uh, we need more uh, patients to study exactly which is the mechanism that help the virus use to create uh, the thrombi to induce a uh, coagulopathy.
1: Thank you. To weigh in on clinical experience, we're fortunate to also have Dr. Lebel here with us today. New York has surpassed even Milan with the burden of COVID disease and mortality, and you and your department at Mount Sinai, and truly the healthcare community of New York, have been in the front lines of the COVID response and research. And I understand that you've been involved with characterizing some of the cases thus far. What are the types of presentation that you've been seeing?
4: there are many skin manifestations to start with of covid-19 and when it first hit here we were not aware that it involved the skin at all and then reports started coming from italy that indeed it did and one of the reports cited numbers higher than 20%. so there are a couple of very specific skin findings. one of them is pernio or something that looks exactly like pernio. we see pernio once or twice a year here and we were seeing 5 or 10 a day. And that, I believe, is a rather specific finding of COVID-19 and due in large part to the coagulopathy. And actually, Dr. Giannotti had told me about the microthrombi that he saw in uh, biopsies of some of the patients. And I think that that's absolutely accurate. That is a a rather specific finding of COVID-19 that does distinguish it from other viruses that we deal with. The second rather specific finding, uh, again, and, and I have to credit Dr. Giannotti for pointing this out was the vascular rashes. We see livido reticularis, which is much less common, and a picture of lividovasculitis with areas of necrosis. And those tend to occur in sicker patients. The pernio patients can either have mild disease or be sick or be asymptomatic other than the type lesions. But the lividovasculitis vasculitis patients tend to have larger vessel involvement, and in some cases, large areas of necrosis due to that rash. Uh, and I believe both of those are rather specific to this virus, as opposed to other conditions we deal with. Much less specific, but certainly not rare, our urticaria-like lesions. And, you know, when you see a patient with urticaria, how do you know it was COVID-19? And I can say that we reported a patient who'd never had urticaria before, was not on any medications whatsoever, did develop rather classic symptoms, fever, upper respiratory tract symptoms, dry cough, and came in a week later to us because she had urticaria, classic urticaria, transient wheels with dermographism. And when she told us of her other symptoms, we got PCR for COVID-19 and proved to be positive. Uh, And that's certainly reported. It is not rare. I believe it is due to the virus. But of course, when patients have taken other medications for either for the symptoms they have or simply for other reasons, and they develop her to carry you, never know if it was COVID-19 or the medicines they took. The same holds true for the erythematous rashes that we see. So we reported a patient who was a physician who developed localized areas of erythematous patches and papules and was not on any medications either. He had also had symptoms for a week, did not take anything for those symptoms. We did the PCR from his nose and that came out positive. we believe that that was a specific COVID-19 rash We've also seen many patients with generalized erythematous patches, and they look exactly like drug eruptions. Some of them are what we would call morbilliform and truly looked like either drug rashes or what we used to call measles. And those are very hard to distinguish in certainly all of those cases. And I actually saw one patient who was asymptomatic but proved to be COVID-19 positive. In all of those cases, they had taken some medication before, so you never know if it was the COVID-19 or the drug. But because we're seeing a few of those, I believe it is COVID-19 related. And then reported our petechial eruptions, and there's speculation that those are vasculitic in origin. When we saw our patient with the localized erythematous patches, whom we did submit for publication, a week later, those lesions became purpuric and petechial. So I'm not sure how specific that is for COVID-19. And last but not least, recent, there reports of an eruption that was said to be identical to chickenpox with vesicles. But when you look at those photos, for anyone who remembers chickenpox, you see dew drops on a petal leaf, literally a very clear vesicle on a red base, and you see lesions in all stages, vesicles next to crusts. And to me, The ones that I saw that were vesicular, they were largely crusted at the time I saw them, did not look anything like what I would have called chickenpox. Uh, Nonetheless, be aware that vesicular eruptions are reported as well.
1: Thank you. Some really important points. First, the variety of morphologies that can present here that it's important for clinicians to be aware of as we're evaluating patients, from the more classic viral presentations of urticarial and morbilliform to the vesicular types of presentations, such as Grover's disease or varicella or zoster-like presentations, and then, of course, the vasculopathic, lividoid, and perneo-like reactions. Dr. Fox, would you like to weigh in from the hospitalist inpatient dermatology perspective? Do you have any guidance for clinicians that are going to be evaluating patients, differentiating between possible COVID presentations and maybe logging them in the COVID registry? Thanks, Shadi. I think, first of all, it's important when we talk
5: about vascular Lesions that we differentiate between what is seen in the inpatient setting and what is seen in the outpatient setting. So let's take the inpatient setting first. So, in the inpatient setting, as Dr. Giannotti was mentioning, there's a report of skin biopsies on retiform purpura. And in those areas of retiform purpura, land thrombi, so purely thrombotic processes. The theory in that paper is that in normal skin that was biopsied and in lesional skin that was biopsied and in non skin samples as well. There was signs of activation of the alternative complement cascade that may implicate complement in the mechanisms of the prothrombotic findings that have been seen in the inpatient setting. While those patients present with retiform purpura, they may also present with lividoracimosa, which is fixed livido and retiform purpura but they're not in DIC, and this is not what is called the quote-unquote perneo COVID toes that we're seeing in the outpatient setting. If we look at the patients that are the otherwise healthy young patients or young adults who present with what has been dubbed COVID toes, which I think is best described as perneo-like lesions, many of those patients have sim- mild symptoms of COVID infection, but many are also asymptomatic and did not know that they had COVID or that they were exposed. The fact that our registry is showing that some of those patients are not only PCR positive but had skin lesions before their COVID symptoms started implies that some of these patients may still be viremic at the time that their skin lesions develop that is not the rule. The rule is that most of these patients are presenting three to four weeks after exposure. So really, they're probably not viremic at the time the skin lesions develop. We also know, and this was published just a few days ago in the JAD case reports, in a COVID-positive, PCR-positive patient who developed symptoms of COVID followed a few days later by the cutaneous pernio like lesions that were biopsied, that the histology is demonstrating that quite typical of garden variety perneo. There is no true vasculitis there and there are no thrombi in those particular skin lesions that have been demonstrated for the perneo-like skin lesions to date. So that implies that there's a different mechanism for those two cutaneous manifestations and it's important that patients and the public understand that the former is associated with very severe COVID presentations and patients who are in the hospital doing very poorly, while the latter is really healthy patients who are probably not going to progress onto more severe disease and most of the time can consider themselves most likely haven't been exposed and this is an immune reaction to the
1: virus. And what do you think is the difference in the mechanism here of patients that are proceeding to more severe disease? That's an awesome
5: question, Shadi, and I don't think we actually know the answer, although there are some papers out there that may be giving us some clues into the pathophysiology of these different cutaneous findings. I would say that in the acutely infected, very ill, hospitalized patient, there is clearly evidence that there is a prothrombotic process going on. There's a paper that came out from The Lancet. They did not look at skin samples, but they did find in other tissues. That there was endothelial involvement of the virus itself. So, in other words, if the virus attacks endothelial cells, you can imagine then that would result in vascular damage and perhaps a prothrombotic state. In the outpatient setting for the pannus-like changes, if you look at some of the interferonopathies that children get, some of those patients also get pannus-like skin changes. So, one of the theories that has been proposed is that when a healthy young patient is exposed to a virus, they have a really robust interferon response that allows them to fight the virus, but also may result in the perineal-like skin changes. If you compare that to older adults who don't have as robust of an interferon response to a virus, that might lead to a cytokine storm, which then results in severe disease and hospitalization with severe ARDS and cytokine storm type sequelae. So that's one theory that's out that
1: I think differentiates those two features that we're seeing clinically on a pathophysiologic level. Something that comes to mind in listening to all of your experiences is how the presentation on the skin can sometimes precede other symptoms or be in isolation without other symptoms. And this is interesting for us to think about as dermatologists as our field has traditionally been in the front lines of identifying other epidemics, such as the HIV epidemic, for example, where dermatologists were reporting a lot of the findings that later gave way to the understanding of HIV. And hearing now from you all that the skin manifestations could be the first sign of disease or the only sign of disease in some cases really highlights the responsibility and obligation of the dermatology community to engage with the public health response. So what would be your guidance for them? For example, with response to COVID testing or possibly other workup given the sequela that we see in some cases, how would you guide our clinicians in this situation?
4: I think that the one service we can do is, you know, you take a person who's asymptomatic, they come in with pernio toes, they have to protect themselves, their families and the public against the possibility that they have COVID-19. And often when we do PCR on them, we detect the virus is there. So I think just seeing the pernio toes should tell that patient that they have to quarantine themselves so that they don't expose others to this.
5: I would agree with Dr. Levall that, we need to change the paradigm with which we approach these cutaneous manifestations to include them in a skin sign or even a criteria for testing so that we understand how to counsel our patients. From our registry, we know that patients may have a PCR positivity or they may not. And so we really have to assume that everybody's able to tr- transmit the virus until we have enough Data to tell us that that's less likely. So, isolation and protecting our communities from exposure is one of the critical points that should come out of recognizing
1: the perineal like lesions. Another point that Dr. Lovewell made was the treatments that are now being given to COVID patients and the possible skin reactions that can occur with those. And so, I wanted to ask Dr. Freeman again about the registry. What if? A clinician is uncertain if the skin findings that they're seeing in a patient are related to COVID or related to other medications that the patient may be taking or medications that they may have been given for presumptive COVID, should these patients still be included? Thank you, Shadi. So, there are several groups of patients that we're including
2: in the registry. So, the first are those with confirmed or suspected COVID that are developing dermatologic manifestations. But the other groups of patients that we're also collecting data on the registry are patients who might have a pre-existing dermatologic condition, such as, for example, psoriasis, eczema, vasculitis, lupus, who then go on to develop COVID-19. And the third group of patients are those who might be on a dermatologic medication, for example, like biologics or Plaquenil, and that then also go on to develop COVID. And so we're interested in all of these groups of patients. You do mention an interesting point, which is I think you're getting at how do we differentiate between the cause of the virus itself versus for potentially a drug or a medication that a patient might have been given for COVID-19 infection. So we recognize that uncertainty and we actually don't require that you come down and tell us for sure A or for sure B, because the reality is we don't probably really know in many cases. And so the registry is meant to capture that uncertainty. We also give you the opportunity to provide some free text assessment or case summary if you want to give us a little bit more
1: detail. Another question that has been arising is that of treatments that patients may already be on and whether they should be removed. For example, immune suppressing treatments. Dr. Lebwal, you have more experience than most dermatologists in the world managing patients on biologics. What would be your guidance to clinicians managing new skin eruptions that might be concerning for COVID in the setting of biologics?
4: Sure. So when the outbreak started, we were getting literally hundreds of calls every single day from patients saying, you know, should I continue on my biologic therapy or not? and we had no data. And what we did was go back to the pivotal trial literature on all of the biologics and look at what their frequency of respiratory viral infections was. And I will say that that helps us make an educated guess, but we shouldn't be fooling ourselves. We have no data on the coronavirus, on COVID-19, and uh, biologic. But having said that, the data was looked at by many of the patient and physician organizations like the National Psoriasis Foundation and the American Academy of Dermatology. And they came out with recommendations that were largely consistent, which said, we don't have enough information, but as far as we can tell, you should be continuing your therapies in the absence of uh, active infection with COVID 19. If you do have COVID 19 infections, as dictated in the package inserts of these drugs, temporarily discontinue your biologic therapies. And the same, by the way, holds true for uh, a premolast and for some of the non psoriasis therapies that are immunomodulating that we use. I think many of us are put on the spot with uh, treating patients with pemphigus and pemphigoid with rituximab because we don't really know what to do. There you're like knocking out B cells and we do know that there's an antibody response which we hope will be protective against coronavirus infections, although we certainly don't know that for sure either. But I have been delaying rituximab infusions in my patients. But as far as biologic therapies, by and large, we have been continuing them unless the patient has active infection.
2: I would certainly encourage people to check on the American Academy of Dermatology website, where we have a lot of clinical guidance documents, interim recommendations regarding biologics and immunosuppressants.
1: For patients presenting with type lesions, how does one know that it's COVID-related versus classic etiologies of pernio? And if patients have vasculopathic lesions, should these be addressed in terms of workup or treatment? we
5: think of perneo in dermatology as either a primary and idiopathic phenomenon, or we're not related to COVID, is a secondary process that may be related to an underlying autoimmune connective tissue disease or a hypercoagulable state, such as antiphospholipid antibody syndrome, among some other conditions. And then lastly, it may be, as I mentioned before, a cutaneous manifestation of a genetic disease in the interferonopathy category. So if we look at causes of secondary pernio, we know that patients may have an underlying associated lupus, antiphospholipid antibody positivity. Rarely patients may have cryoglobulinemia or cold agglutinins or may have an associated vasculopathy. Any therapeutic intervention really needs to be considered with the hematologist and critical care physicians that are taking care of the patients in the hospital setting. In terms of therapy, since most patients with the perneo like skin lesions have mild symptoms, most patients do well with reassurance, but therapies that have been offered and are at least moderately successful are topical steroids, such as clobetasol, and in conjunction with low-dose aspirin, which, remember, you don't want to give to children with high fever because of the risk of Ray syndrome.
4: Pernio has different frequencies in different parts of the world. And of course, COVID-19 epidemics occurs with different frequencies in different parts of the world. And certainly in New York, we see in our department perneo maybe once or twice every year in the entire department. That's actual perneo. And we now have this incredible epidemic where we're seeing five, 10 cases a day, and 100% of them are COVID-19 related even if the test is negative. If someone had other symptoms that would suggest a connective tissue disease or cryoglobulinemia, perhaps we would pursue that. But right now, I think the only test we would get is... PCR for COVID-19 if it were available, and it is not yet routinely available. It's still in short supply, and I expect that to change. And certainly in the first few patients we saw, we were able to get it because we realized we were seeing something unusual. Now that we're used to seeing the type lesions, we would presume that that was uh, COVID-19 related. And unless it persisted, we probably would not pursue other diagnoses At this time, if it persisted, of course, we would actually do a comprehensive connective tissue disease workout for those patients, including things like cryoglobulinemia. But right now, we would presume it's COVID-19 related. If testing for that became routine and available, I would do that. But in the absence of that testing being widely available, I would simply presume that it was COVID-19 related in this area because simply we don't see perneo normally. And by the way, it's warm weather and a place that has easily accessible heat. Pernia is very uncommon here.
1: What can we be looking for and learning about in terms of things that are in development in our response to this epidemic? There are multiple new tests and treatments that we're hearing about. What do we think the future is going to look like in terms of testing and treatment and changes in our society in the weeks and months ahead?
4: So I think most of us are worried that until we develop herd immunity, which may be a long time, and we may have a lot of deaths and a lot of days of closure of normal activities before that occurs. When we have a vaccine, hopefully that will end this. But sooner than that, the treatments that are out there are several. Um, you actually asked the question earlier, do we anticoagulate patients? Only patients who are very ill. So when patients come in the hospital, and we are seeing, by the way, patients treated with Lovenox are having their illness improve substantially, sometimes quickly. Remdesivir has been very promising. And hopefully that will be approved for this. And I think that it's going to be clear that it works. And in terms of other treatments like hydroxychloroquine and azathioprine, unfortunately, there are publications coming out, for example, where they took the first 100 patients and said, well, the ones on hydroxychloroquine did worse than the ones that didn't get it. Well, Mount Sinai, we only put the sick patients on it, so of course they're going to do worse. So I think we may not get a clear answer easily unless a really well-done trial is performed, uh, which I know Tony Fauci has been calling for. But I think some of the drugs so clearly work that eventually we will hopefully have those.
1: And in the meantime, what can each person do to be helpful? I think that there are a lot of people who are trying to assist and contribute in their own ways to this war effort in the global pandemic. And so my final question for the panel is, what guidance would you have for each clinician, for listeners to this discussion on what they can do to help?
4: I would turn to the AAD and look at guidances from the AAD. The AAD has relied heavily on uh, CDC guidances and has really taken this viral epidemic on in a very rapid way. The group that is on the COVID-19 response for the AAD has moved so quickly. They've given very good advice to our members. They've told them on how to handle different clinical scenarios. And I would turn to the AAD. I will say also, listen to the AAD, do what is told. But I really uh, object strongly to, there's an article in the New York Times that claimed that dermatologists were not isolating, were not closing down and we're basically interfering with the social distancing and the efforts to limit the scope of the epidemic. And at the time that that author wrote that, I have a staff of 26 residents, most of whom were in emergency rooms and on the wards. We had many of our voluntary doctors and our full-time staff working in emergency rooms and on wards. Many of them were doing midnight shifts, Our staff is down to a skeletal crew here at Mount Sinai. We have our staff disinfecting hallways and holding the hands of people who are ill in ICUs. And I just thought, here's a reporter sitting at home writing about how dermatologists are, in fact, not participating. And we're literally putting our lives on the line to do this. So uh, I think the uh, AAD voice has to be loud in response to... um, Articles like that, which I thought were incredibly objectionable.
2: Thank you, Dr. is I'm part of the American Academy of Dermatology COVID-19 Task Force, along with Lindy and many others, and Lindy being on this call and many others as well. And we really appreciate the shout out as it's been, I think, really an inspiring group to be a part of. Um, and I think it's been wonderful to see AAD leadership, in particular in terms of George Ruzza and Bruce Sears, really take this head on, as you said, and not really waiting for other people to... I think define dermatology's response to this, but to really do this from within dermatology. And I think that's so important. I also wanted to echo another point that Dr. LeBwell made about dermatologists being on the front lines and dermatologists doing their part. And I, I couldn't agree more. I think that. What's been really heartening for me to see and when you ask what can dermatologists do is people are still seeing essential and urgent visits through telemedicine or through their clinics being opening in limited ways in order to see those cases that really need to be seen in person so as to keep people out of the emergency department and away from being exposed from COVID unnecessarily. So I really appreciate our colleagues that have taken that to heart and to also our residents that have been volunteering, uh, people have been coming up with really creative solutions, potentially been donating their clinic supplies or PPE when they are not needed. So a real thanks to the dermatologic community for coming together in this.
1: Thank you for reminding us of the resources that are available through the efforts of the AAD and through our academic community. This panel is a good representation of the international friendships and collaborations in the dermatology community that have enabled us to learn from each other and work together to address what we can for patients in this epidemic. And thank you again to our listeners. Please stay safe and well.
0: The American Academy of Dermatology has numerous COVID-19 guidance and resources on managing your practice, legislation and regulation, and teledermatology. Please visit www.aad.org for this information.